Welcome to Screw It. We're just going to talk about comics, the only podcast where two brothers talk about a thing they love, and that thing is comic books. I'm one of your hosts, uh, a comic book fan, a brother, and a kind of comedian, Kevin Hines. And I have the other host, a uh, comic book fan, a uh, kind of brother, definitely a comedian, mm-hmm. Will Hines. That's that's the correct categories. Um <laughs> Uh, so right now we're doing another uh, batch of interviews. We're having guests on, friends, comedians, and some comic professionals. Well, yeah. Uh, and today is a big one—one one that we we have no right interviewing this person. This is a travesty, and this is what we're doing today is disrespectful to the comic book industry that we're interviewing this person. We don't deserve to. I think less of him for agreeing to let us talk to him. Uh, I thought very highly of him. And then he said, yes, I will uh, talk to Will and Kevin. And I said, well, you shouldn't have. Yeah, that's what's... Uh, Value yourself. Yeah, you deserve better. Um, uh, who is the person, Will Hines? This person is Chris Claremont. Um, yeah. The so this writer, is somebody, yeah. This is somebody who uh, wrote the X-Men, the most important modern comic in Marvel comic history that you and I did not read. Yeah, until months ago, and but which we fell in love with instantly and are currently loving now. Yeah, and we respected he, it before we read it, and now yeah. we both respect it and love it. And because of our lacking in reading that, he should have said no. He should have done his research. He said these guys are not good enough <laughs> to interview me. But even before we read these issues, we knew because you can't not know this if you're a fan of superhero comics mm-hmm. how important Claremont is to the Marvel story and to the superhero story in general. We've said it many times before, after the initial trio of Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, and Steve Ditko, he's he's the next most important figure in Marvel history, we think. Yeah, uh, and you definitely know, on the creative side. Um, yeah. You know, maybe Shooter or one of the editors or things like that. Uh, the movies are probably the next biggest thing. Kevin Feige is probably after uh, Claremont. But in terms of what the X-Men franchise did for Marvel, mm-hmm. Uh, and we were there when this was happening. I mean, it's you can't overstate it. Like it reinvigorated the company. Um, it by itself was the most popular title. It spun off other titles that were that there. There was a long period where X books were invincible. Yeah, uh, within Marvel, I think there's a world where if this didn't, if Len and Chris didn't relaunch the X Men, if they just decided let's just cancel the title, forget those characters. Let's not take a risk on this. Um, Marvel ends. Yeah, the Marvel ends and, you know, maybe Spider-Man gets bought out by DC. Like the big characters end up somewhere else. So, you know, you, you don't ever, you won't ever yeah. lose those characters. But like Marvel as a company yeah. ceases to be because like they didn't do well for a while. And the only thing keeping them up was the X-Books. And Claremont was such a huge, huge part of that as the guy yeah. who took, you know, Giant Size X-Men was written by Len Wein. But with the very next issue, Claremont was the lead writer and he stayed there until 1992 or whatever it was. Yeah. And so and and even though we had not read the original run of Claremont Mm -hmm. and Cockrum and Claremont and Byrne, I mean, Kevin and I did read a lot of Claremont in the 80s. We read all the new mutants. I was reading a bunch of X-Men in the Paul Smith era. I read Excalibur Um, uh, for a long stretch. So we, we were fans. And I mean, I remember in high school, Claremont did a stop in. Good old Danbury, Connecticut, at that comic book store on Main Street, Kevin. He did like a signing, and I went down there and brought like an issue of X Men and chatted with him really quickly, and it was the thrill. 
That's when you booked him for this interview. Yeah, I said, hey, this is going to sound crazy, but in 30 years, there'll be a medium called the internet. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And as a superhero writer, he was like, you know what? I believe it. I'll see you there. (laughs) (laughs) It didn't throw him. It didn't throw him at all. So, Uh, you know, we were, you know, we were so unbelievably thrilled to get to talk to him. Um, You can hear it. We're nervous. Like uh, every little joke that gets made, Kevin, when I was listening to the edit, I like over laugh. I'm like Mm -hmm. so like nervous that like we're interviewing Claremont and um, we had a million questions. um, And so, and we were just so excited. So we're just so grateful that it happened. Um, yeah, it's it's a really fun interview. Uh, it went way long. Uh, no surprise there. Yeah. So one thing we wanted to say is Claremont is like candid. Like he he's ha- he has opinions and he wants to say them. Um, so we were excited for that. And um, so the interview went like a lot longer. We did edit it for time. So there's 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 stuff we took out. But um, uh, yeah, it it really caught us by surprise. Yeah, so, so so you might hear that we edited. Uh, there might be some moments you could tell that we we skip questions and things like that, uh, just to make this thing not a two hour long epic. Yeah. Um, and um, but we're really excited for it. It's definitely the biggest interview we've we've had. Yeah. Um, and it was really fun to do this, like kind of while we are reading the original issues, like something yeah. we do say to him in the beginning is like, oh no, actually he did cut this part out, but like right when we first met him, I was like, this is insane, but I am currently fanboying on these original yeah, yeah. new X-Men yeah. stuff. Like we, I, I read them last week, you know, we talked um, to him for 20 minutes. It was just you and I talking about how, how his comics are good. Yeah. And so, we, we, we cut when the interview, we start when the interview actually starts and not just us, but fawning it was it's it's very fun to get to tell the creators that you admire stuff like that so we really are grateful for that i want to thank uh patrick um our friend uh who's the producer of podcasts and over at marvel for help for helping make this connect Mm -hmm. um and uh i don't know kev do we need to set anything else up or can we get into it i think just listen and then we'll come back at the end and we'll um we'll talk tell you what tell you what you learned (laughs) (laughs) yeah we'll tell you what you thought of it all right, yeah. so here's our interview with Chris Claremont. One of the things we wanted to ask you is about the early days of X-Men. So when it started, the book was not one of the popular Marvel books. I think, in fact, one of the reasons why maybe you were allowed to work on it as a, as a newer, as one of the younger writers was it wasn't sought after like maybe Spider-Man was. Is that right? Yeah, totally. I mean, Len and Dave. Len Wein, editor, what? Dave Cockrum, artist. When Stanley essentially decided, let's give it another shot, the decision was made to go for a more international slant because didn't sell in the States. Let's see if we can sell it overseas. So he sat down with Roy, kicked around some ideas. Roy sat down with Len, kicked around some ideas. All right, Roy Thomas, Marvel Comics writer and editor. That's how it started evolving. Dave was a little ticked off at DC because they didn't like some of his new ideas that he wanted to bring into the Legion of Superheroes, which he'd been drawing. For example, Storm and Nightcrawler originally started out as pitches to DC. Wow. So Dave took the concepts. He and Len Wein got together. They started working on the X-Cannon. At that time, Len was editor-in-chief. I was associate editor, which meant that as number two, I... I had a desk outside his office (laughs) and together we basically ran the house, the color house. Although his perception was probably totally different. He ran the show and there was this punk ass kid right outside. (laughs) 
we were a totally different company back then. I mean, conceptually, in reality, everything. Jump ahead to that. I want to talk about what Marvel was like mid 70s to early 80s. I feel like so much good stuff came out of Marvel. What made Marvel work? To a blunt extent, it worked because as far as any of us involved in it were concerned, and again, this is going back to 72, 73, 74, a dying company in a dying industry. Wow. From a purely analytical perspective, comics was, you know, a half hour after hitting the iceberg. <laughs> well, we're not quite sinking yet. We're just <laughs> sitting lower in the, the water <laughs> because sales were going down and down and down. No one knew quite what to do to correct it. DC was substantially the same old, same old. Marvel yeah. was had lots of interesting stuff. There was nowhere to sell it. Yeah. The newsstands were shrinking in number, and it wasn't really a, a focused or coherent way of distributing mass quantities of periodicals. How does that affect things creatively? Maybe the pressure's off? Maybe it's like, hey, let's just try anything? Or Well, DC, again, they had a much more rigorous, traditional editorial structure. Mm -hmm. You had guys in suits who'd been in the business for 10, 15, 20 years. They knew what they knew how to do this. And then you had all these punk kids coming in who wanted to try things differently. And the editors were trying to shape them into a more responsible mold. Stan's rubric as editor in chief was when he when he gave a book to someone to write, it's like there are three rules. Get the book in on time, do good work, don't be a pain in my ass. Because I'm working too hard trying to save the company right now. <laughs> And if, from his perspective, any two out of those three, you could keep your job. <laughs> He'd prefer one of them be do good work. Right. Just try and hold on to sales. But not being a pain in the ass and getting your book in on time actually worked. Yeah. Because it was one less element of grief. Right. Marvel ended up being much more open to crazy people. <laughs> it's, it's interesting because I think even from the standpoint, that standpoint of like DC's kind of doing the same old, same old. So Marvel's able to kind of be a little more creative. There was an aspect of like, I, I feel like just before like the late sixties, like Marvel, when it started was awesome and amazing and all these crazy ideas and really fun stuff. And then even that, and I've read a lot of that in reprints, not everything is like it would get stagnant or have fill-ins or sort of lose focus. But like, right. Like when the X-Men were starting uh, all the books just, just all started like shooting up like uh books were just writing the ships uh avengers was getting better x-men got tremendously better spider-man was getting better fantastic four is getting better not all right at the same time but it was interesting that all this talent sort of came around those like five or six years well yeah i mean i i had pretty much given up comics american comics i mean my link was through the comics i read when i was a kid eagle comics stand there that sort of thing it was just uh, that was what I was in love with. You know, Frank Hampson, Frank mm -hmm. Bellamy as artists on Heroes the Spartan or again, Dan Dare. It was like, holy cow. Then when I was in high school, I'd stumbled over Fantastic Four 48, mm. The Coming That's of good. Galactus, that arc, 48 through 50. And I thought, pretty good comic. <laughs> but, but that was it. It was like, holy cow. Yeah, I mean, here's Galactus hammering on the Baxter building 
and Stan spends a whole page focused on a cop, someone else. I'm not sure from memory whether it was just a civilian or or a postman or something. One guy's asking the cop, is this it? And yeah. the cop's saying, eh, eh, the FF will find a way. Yeah. You know, and it was just like, wow, ordinary people. Yeah. Thor getting into a taxi cab and how come you're the god of thunder? How come you're riding in a cab? <laughs> if I went zooming over the city and with my hammer extended, all you thou, thou mortals would think something awful is happening. Therefore, I ride in your in your <laughs> conveyance to not so as not to alarm people. You know, God forbid he should turn into Don Blake, but you know, that's a whole different thing. Marvel was grounded more coherently and effectively in a culture that was relatable in ways that Gotham and Star City and Metropolis weren't. They were just backgrounds. Right. Whereas, you know, everybody at DC tended to be a millionaire or a demigod. So who needed money? You, um, you were hired by Stan. Right. When I was a freshman, my college, Bard College, shut down for January and February in what was called field period. Okay. So we, all, we basically figured it was a cheap way of getting everybody out of town to lower the heating bills. <laughs> but the idea was you went out for, you had two months to go out and ideally get a job related to your major. Okay. So you could, you, while you were going for your degree, you were at the same time getting a practicum in the areas, the fields you were interested in. At that time, my majors were political theory and acting. Well, I'm sorry, January of 69 was not the time you, as a student at a leftist, to put it kindly, school that was number one on the DA's hit, DEA's hit parade. <laughs> so, so politics wasn't the way to go then? Politics was not the way to go. As anyone will tell you, trying to get a job in theater in January in New York is the next best thing to bailing water on the Titanic. <laughs> uh, my parents had a friend, Al Jaffe. I don't know. Sure, Mad Magazine, Folden. Yeah. Yeah, the, you know, one of the, to put it quietly, one of the true great talents of American comics or comic yeah. art. Yeah. I thought, well, that would be cool to work for Mad Magazine. <laughs> yeah. And apparently Al told my parents, no fucking way. Well, I <laughs> a job at Mad. Do you have any idea what we do there? <laughs> apparently it was a wild and crazy place. But then he said, but I know a guy. Is Chris interested in comics at all? And yes, I was. I read comics. As a matter of fact, when I went to university, my father happily threw out my entire collection of comics, including the 1963 issue of Action Comics, where Superman confesses his real identity to John Kennedy, <laughs> which came out 10 days before the assassination. Oh, my gosh. And got pulled the day after. Ugh. So it's a comic that probably, to the, if I'd taken good care of it to this day, would have paid for my kids. <laughs> But my dad tossed it. So, but Al Jaffe's like, does he like comics? He's like, yes. So he, he, no, we were Stan, friends. I and, no, and I said, yes. And uh, he said, I'll call a friend. And the next thing I, the phone rings and, hey there, true believer, this is family. <laughs> I make the pitch and he said, well, you got to understand, we're a very small, poor company. We can't afford to hire staff. 
And I said, well, sir, I'm doing this for college credit. I'm not allowed to ask for pay. You're hired. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Eventually they gave me like 25 bucks a week to cover train fare. (laughs) And I went to work as well, as what we call then a gopher. You have to understand the bullpen at this time was Herb Trimpey, John Romita Sr., Marie Severin, and Frank Giacoya. So you're talking like the murderer's row of, of top-notch talent. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's the bullpen. These are the guys in the, in the office doing art corrections. The office itself was this little itty-bitty space on uh, 63rd and Madison. I mean... You can't really see it, but if you could, so I'm in a room that's about 45 feet by 15 feet, Yeah, which is roughly the dimensions of the Marvel offices, just more square. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Who, who was responsible for getting good people there? Was Stan just have an eye for talent? Was it just like one good person begets another good person who shows up? Like, I feel like there was just a magnet of good people started showing up there, I think. Well, it's, we had to get the books out. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but also this is an age when we had a book ready to go to the printer and, and Roy did the final reading on it. They pulled the series right then and there because it just, it didn't, it didn't sing. There was, it was a ruthless circumstance and and that was meant writing off all the work that had been done already. Oh my gosh. But it was also, it was also the kind of place where, for example, I'm sitting there reading all the books I can get my hands on just for the fun of it. But at the same time, I'm proofreading new stuff coming in. So I'm reading this issue of, of Sergeant Fury, where he goes back to Brooklyn and, and meets his mom and his brother, who will grow up to become Scorpio. Okay. Just a brother. The problem is, I just read year or two of Sergeant Fury. One of the issues being the court-martial of Nick Fury, where the priest gets up and says, well, you have to understand, you, sir, Poor Nick Fury was an orphan. (laughs) You know, I went to Roy and said, we have a problem. I told him what was going on. And he said, okay, you call. I'm sorry. You call Stan, tell him, figure out how to do, what to do. I I call Stan, (laughs) you found it, you fix it. Bear in mind, I'm a gopher. I've been there for like three weeks. (laughs) I pick up the phone, you know, call Stan and tell him. And Stan said, fix it. Hung up. <laughs> so I went back to my table and started reading. And I guess this is the first clue that I knew what I was doing because the light bulb went off. The fix was simple. So Nick goes back to Brooklyn to visit his adopted family. <laughs> yeah. That's all it takes sometimes. Well, I do think one thing I love about this, these X-Men issues that I'm reading now is I do feel like there is that attention to the continuity. Some combination of you and the editors and the artist were really minding the ship on those details. I mean, as a reader, I like it when the writer is thinking about it as much as I am, the reader. Well, you how know? could you not? I mean, it's a continuous Well, a lot story. of comics you could find where, you know, Peter Parker gets called Peter Palmer in one issue. So you fix it. You give a no prize. You, right, exactly. You- we weren't looking at this from the perspective like Superman that what we do today will impact on the books 50 years in the future. Right. None of us thought we'd be here or Marvel <laughs> would be here 50 years in the future. You were just trying to make a good story for that month. Yeah. The thing with Len was when he, he and Dave are sitting in his office structuring out Giant Size 1 and I'm sitting outside 
think, listening. And this is so cool. And occasionally sneaking in and watching Dave oh, present the art. At one point, they come to the question of how the hell do we beat Krakoa? The 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 island the living island that they fight giant size X-Men. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, you could just run away. It's not like he could chase you. <laughs> <laughs> That's where I figured you've got 13 characters. All an island is is the top of a really big mountain. So why not just cut the top off from the mountain underneath and somehow neutralize gravity and let it and let the orbital truth deal with the rest, which is what we ended up doing. He, Krakoa remains stationary while the Earth keeps rotating on its axis. Within the space of five minutes, he's like thousand, the island's thousands of feet up in the atmosphere. Give it an hour, the Earth has moved on. Meanwhile, the Earth is going around in its orbit. The solar system is going around in it, this, the galaxy in its orbit. The galaxy is moving. So I figured he's gone. We'll never see him again, thank God. See, the way you just described that, the way you described the deep, like, I think I might have just said, knock the top off the island, float it up into space. But the way you just, like, laid out <laughs> the details of gravity gets less, its integration doesn't hold, the Earth rotates away, the solar system rotates away, that's a Chris Claremont caption right there. Like, like spelling out those details so that me, the reader, is along for the ride of the destruction of this villain. What's that? Except Len wrote it, and I have had better than 40 years to, to hone the story. Still. <laughs> so now, but here's what I'm interested in. Len and Dave are in there. They're going over Giants as X-Men 1. They're thinking about rebooting this. What characters are we going to bring in? Cockrum is showing his drawings that DC rejected and whatever other ideas he has. And then you, outside the office, are poking your head in and getting involved and mm -hmm. muscling, muscling your way in there. And then you're told, how did, how did it come that you're picked to write the very next issue? No, Len announced that he was leaving. Okay. His exit deal was four monthly titles, the four top titles in the line out of the FF count, not including the FF count. But he didn't have time to handle the bi-monthly X-Men. So I basically tackled him and said, I want this book. <laughs> Because I wanted the opportunity, day. not only that I love the characters, the visuals that Dave came up with, but the thought of working with Dave Cockrum was just irresistible. From Len's perspective, it was okay because it'll shut him up and get him out of my face. <laughs> and um, let's see what the kid can do. You, you talked about that, you know, at Marvel, you're being given this book for a while. You're, you're doing your now chapter of this saga of the story. But in a way, you know, you're on X-Men almost at the beginning for a lot of these characters, except for uh, Cyclops. And like a lot of those characters were almost uh, unformed. Some were completely new. Yeah. And then on top of that, like you were there. I mean, you didn't know this at the time forever. You got to do such a large chunk and it was so formative. It's very impressive and almost... Uh, almost impossible now in comics to imagine someone coming in to an existing property, but it's still feeling completely new and being there for so long, being so instrumental in it. In the same way that Stan was, Stan and Jack and Steve were instrumental. You did that. It was a unique moment. Yeah. It, it was the opportunity to take over a series from the get-go. Yes. All we had basically were the visuals and the basic character structures yeah. of the five new characters. Yeah. This woman controls the weather. This guy looks like a demon. This guy <laughs> is a Russian who turns into steel. 
Yeah. This guy is Canadian angry. He'd already been created. Leonard created but, but not a Night lot had Polo. been done with him. He was still no, pretty almost new. nothing. Yeah. Don't leave, leave us not forget Thunderbird or Thunderbird. Yeah. So we had these five characters. It was a brand new title. Yeah. It was essentially. No one, Absolutely. And that opportunity doesn't exist anymore. It hasn't so, existed for get, a decade. Yeah, but because of that, in a way, uh, and Will and I have said this to each other a lot, is just that other than Stan, Jack, and Steve, other than that initial burst, there's no run at Marvel that can even come close to the X-Men in the way that it, you know, it's become its own franchise. It's become, it could be its own universe. It doesn't need the rest of the Marvel universe. It's so big and expansive and cool. And there's so many ideas. Uh, mm-hmm. One thing I thought when read when I read it, is it feels like the old Jack Kirby, Stanley, Fantastic Four, the yes. way that these characters bounce from adventure to adventure, almost without a breath in between. And each adventure is like, could almost be its own title. Uh, all new characters. It's it's so yeah, impressive that, what you the, guys pulled off. The density of ideas and the pace are awesome. But you have to understand the reality of those days. Again, defined by distributing to newsstands and not specific comic book stores. From Stan's perspective, every story had to be a single issue because we couldn't guarantee the next issue would arrive at the newsstand or at your particular newsstand. Doesn't mean you can't have ongoing continuity, but each story had to have a beginning, a middle, and an end in that issue. If it if it's a really, really good story, like Days of Future Past, Oof. you can have two. <laughs> if it is a if it is a total game changer, like the coming of Galactus. Two and a half issues, but in the second half of the last issue, Johnny Storm has to go to college. (laughs) You have to have something new to bring the readers back for issue 52. Right. Or 53. The point was that the idea of doing an ongoing five or 10 or 25 issue arc that crosses over between seven different titles and each issue is integral to the the structure was insane, considered insane because we didn't have the distribution. We didn't have the guarantee. You'd ha- you'd end up with readers getting issue one and issue 14 and not knowing who the hell anybody was. That was why the rubric was every issue has to introduce the characters yeah. on the presumption that the it's readers are brand new because sure. that was the way to hook a new reader. Yeah. to increase sales. Today's attitude that everything is constructed in five-issue bursts yeah, solely for the, the purpose of binding them together into a trade right. it would have been antithesis, but the single-issue story is antithesis to today. So what you've got is people introducing the character in issue one and just running it as a single story in five parts for the next five parts. So if you don't find it, or if, if they sell out at your comic book store and you don't pick up an issue until issue three, mm-hmm. you very possibly might not know who anybody is or what mm-hmm. the Dickens is going on. Right. Therefore, why would you go back and p- pick up one and two or four and five? A lot of readers say, well, I'll wait for the trade. Right. But if you don't have those initial sales, yeah. there won't be a trade. Right. Well, I will just say one other thing on that is just that, you know, you're saying, oh, oh well, the comic felt like this because it had to. That's how we did comics. But also that's true of all the comics at the time. And nothing had the impact of X-Men. So you guys certainly took the constraints that everyone was under and 
just knocked it so far out of the park. It's so impressive uh, what was created in those days. If even if you didn't know until hindsight what you had done, it is it is it is Fantastic Four like where it's like oh now we can do an Inhumans title now we can do a Namor title. I mean yeah, Namor existed before that, and you guys were doing that even though the seeds would not grow until later. It's like it came because it was such a creative, fertile title. Uh, it was amazing. Well, yeah, but I mean, part of it also was since Dave and I figured in effect, yeah. we had nothing to lose. Let's do what we want. There, there is great. that feeling. Um, yeah. When Kevin and I read modern comics, of course, there's tons of great modern comics, tons of great stories, but a sort of unfortunate thing about, current comics is there's so much revered history that hems in writers sometimes that I hunger for the feeling of like loose recklessness where I feel like the writer is just almost in a fun way disregarding what came before. It's harder to come by. When I read the old 60s Stan Lee stuff with Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko, they obviously are creating new stuff. You get that feeling of inventiveness, that feeling of like, why not, why not? It's harder to come by, but it's definitely there in those early X-Men issues. But it felt like Kirby, and I mean that in the highest compliment. Like, Thank you. Like, I feel like I am being told a story by somebody who can't wait to tell it to me. And that's mm -hmm. rare. That's hard to achieve. And it's all over those X-Men stories, and I love it. Thank you. Uh, and the pace was incredible, too. Just like, I, uh, I couldn't believe how early in the run Phoenix, Phoenix shows up. Phoenix shows up almost immediately. What a huge, huge move. That's a matter of pure practicality. The book starts on at issue 94, and the first, the first edict that came down was, we have issue 100 in six issues. <laughs> Figure out something cool. <laughs> well, you did. We don't know who anybody is. Fine. Figure <laughs> out something cool. How? I don't know. You're the writer. <laughs> Nothing okay. depends on it, but your job. Here's the, here's the question I've been meaning to ask you, and I think this might be impossible to answer, but in those days when you're sitting down to write a new issue, or even, even now, I'll take any time. I'm a typewriter, no less. Oh, yeah. Who can imagine? <laughs> well, think about it. It requires a certain precision of work. You can't just save the file and reboot a new one. You have to literally tear the page out and start all over again. And your fingers start to hurt after a while. So you've really got to think you, about- You make it count. Yeah. Well, yes. Anyway, sorry. Okay, that's okay. This is the question I've been dying to ask you and I think it's impossible to answer. When you're sitting down to write a comic story or any story, what's important to you? What's on your mind? What, when, what, is it, what are you thinking? Okay, here's what I want. Here's how I know it's going to be good. The brutal thing is what happens next? What would, what would make me want to read this book? What what do I care? Where do I want these characters to go? Sometimes it's it's a dramatic image. Uh, okay. The, the X Titans started with me sitting in Louis editor Louise Simonson's office, just spitballing what I had in mind: X Men, Titans, Dark Side. At the very same moment that Walt Simonson's walking by outside, and he hears suddenly there's a pause, and he sticks his head in and says, "Did somebody mention Dark Side?" Yeah. Who is one of his favorite characters. Yes. And from that moment, we had our story. And from it came Walter's brilliant, the ad piece he did, which is Phoenix, Dark Phoenix, coming out of the darkness with this giant hand reaching out to her. And she's pissed. <laughs> as she's being reformed. And her dialogue is, 
who dares summon Dark Phoenix? Yeah. And about it is, I, Dark Side. <laughs> yeah. Ooh. You don't need to know anything else. Yeah. Sometimes it's a primal image. Yeah. Sometimes it's, for want of anything else, a second thought when the editor comes in and says, you've just killed six billion people. You can't walk away from that. Oh, yeah. I love that story. Well, but the point is, we sheared away from it, both John and I, because you can't kill a major character. So I guess we should... Except Shooter came in and said, you can't do what you did yeah. and get away with it. So our point, but we cleared it with our editor. <laughs> Fine, your editor has just been fired, which, you know, quote unquote, but he was not fired, but he, he left the book. You now have to deal with this situation. So what you're talking about, I just watched the uh, Chris Claremont's X-Men documentary last week, which I really enjoyed. <laughs> I really loved it. And I recommend it to all fans of X-Men. I think it's really great. And I'm so glad that it got made and I'm so glad Again, that you participated you. in it. But it tells the story of the death of Phoenix, basically, and how when Jean Grey becomes is moving towards becoming Dark Phoenix and her an evil nature is born and is taking over that at one moment she eats a sun, which causes the death of a planet and everybody and all these alien creatures on it. And that when Jim Shooter, the executive editor or editor in chief, whatever no, his title editor was. Editor in chief. It's a very simple. Yeah. The boss. The boss read it and was like, there's got to be consequences. You can't be a mass murderer and not have there be consequences. And then put it on you guys to figure out some something that made sense to answer that. And the answer that after back and forth and this out of the other was that Phoenix had to die. Well, there was no back and forth. It was me. I mean, John threw in the eating the planet as a throwaway. <laughs> and we got it cleared by... Was it Jim Salakrup or was it a Roger yeah. Stern? Yeah, no, it was Jim Salakrup. Okay. right. This is right before Louise becomes editor. Like, Louise becomes the editor right after this. No, she came became the editor in the middle of Dark Phoenix, in the <laughs> middle of the giant size, because oh, really? Jim got really pissed. <laughs> <laughs> but we'd assumed everything had been cleared up and down the line. If we got a green light, apparently we were misinformed. <laughs> or so the story goes. It was literally a case where the book's going to the printer. This is the Friday that it was supposed to go. Jim reads the book as the final checkout as a total shit fit. Yeah. We have a weekend to fix it. I have a weekend to fix it. Oh, my gosh. So as the story goes, I, I went home, broke open the one and only time for one and only time, my bottle of tequila <laughs> thought about it. The problem was there are two, it's a binary equation. Either Gene lives, but then the next hundred odd issues basically become the X-Men go to the rescue, they succeed, they're on the run, they get captured, they all go to jail, they break free, they're on the run. One, they get captured, Gene sets them free, they're on the run, yada, 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 yada. Or she dies. Yeah. The moral point, I guess, of the arc is she becomes Phoenix as an act of both sacrifice, the embracing of her evolutionary destiny. Right. It was inevitable. That, yeah. Assuming that power far, 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 far too early in her development. Right. While she thinks she can control it and does control it, when she saves creation. The Star Jammers she, thing. Well, the Star Jammer Shi'ar War. The seeds are planted for what will come next. 
What that is embodied by is the Hellfire Club. The problem with that is... Jason Wingard or, or Jason Sebastian Wingard, Shaw? Yeah. He's thinking of her in terms of ordinary superheroes. Right. She's just she has no powers. idea of what she really is because yes, so- she has no idea of what she really is. All right. We're going to take a break and we'll be right back with the second half of our interview with Chris Claremont. Hi, this is Kevin. I'm here with my brother, Will, and we are the hosts of Screw It. We're just going to talk about comics, our weekly podcast about comic books. And we want to hear from you. We have a slew of social media accounts, a slew. You can email us at screwitcomics at gmail.com or see us on Instagram at screwitcomics or tweet at us at screwitcomics. So tell us what you think of the comics you like or the comics you don't or things we've talked about on our episodes. Or send us some life advice. You can tell that we need it. Yes. Uh, We might read your message on a future episode of our show. So thanks. In advance from Screw It, we're just going to talk about comics from Campfire Media. So I get what what, what we're seeing here, Chris. I can't tell you how exciting it is for me to hear you talk like this. I just read these issues for years and years. I'd heard about the death of Phoenix as one of the great uh, superhero stories or just stories. And I just got to it. I was dev, even though I knew it was coming, I was devastated, devastated at that moment. But I respected it and hearing you because it felt earned. It felt like it would be a cop out to not do this. And the, and the thing that what I'm hearing you say, and I think this is probably true of Louise and John and Dave and maybe lots of people at Marvel, even shooter for throwing his shit fit, like respecting the story. You make these choices. You got to live with it. You can't ignore it. All right. Tell tell me where I'm wrong. Tell me where I'm wrong. Well, no, it's just, it's a binary equation. I mean, I turned one way, John, would have turned a different way. Okay. Because I had a totally different view of Phoenix and the relationship than he did. John would have kept her alive? He would have found a different way to resolve the equation. Okay, okay. For me, for what it evolved to, it all comes down to Gene saying to Scott at the end of the story, I can stay Phoenix. I want to stay Phoenix with all my heart, but that will mean I must remain absolutely in control of every aspect of my being for the rest of my probably immortal life. And if I slip even the tiniest bit and someone dies, that's on me. And I just, I won't do that. I can't do that. I'm not ready to do that. And so she ends herself. Yeah. And it's not, I'm probably parsing hairs, but to me, it's not a suicide so much as a sacrifice. Right. It's like, She's at a crossroads and the risks are too high. The, her- the heroism is not that she'll take the risk. The heroism is that she chooses better to end this. The beauty of it from a publishing standpoint is there was no internet. Right. There was no comic. There was comic fandom, but the- that was male. And we did this at the very, very, very last minute. And we kept quiet about it. Yeah, no one saw it. So that when the book came out, Four weeks later, everybody was taken by surprise. Surprise. People would say, okay, we'll wait for the next issue where they, they say, we were, we were only fooling over that the next arc leading up to Days of Future Past, which is, you think that was tough. Boom. Yeah. No one had ever killed off a major character for real in modern comics history. Yeah. And we just done it. And we said it was serious. And we're going to hold to that, which we did for four years. 
that's a fight all in and yeah. of itself. That's a, that's a whole but, other chapter. But, but I, um, I I love that the birth of Phoenix is because issue 100 is coming up, and the death of Phoenix is because John Byrne threw in a panel. Like those bookmarks are just like faded to be, and then everything else grows around it. Welcome to comics. But that's that's the whole point. It's none of this is. Yeah, it's not. It's not like people carefully etching things in stone. There's there's a bit of improvisation and survival and sort of doing what's necessary in the moment and living with it in a fun way. But I think that's one of the things that has been devalued over the last quarter century. How do you mean that everything is now plotted and structured? Every both companies have these major meetings. Mm-hmm. Everyone sits down. This is what the next two years will be. Do, 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 yeah. Do. Here's this ten pole. Here's that ten pole. Yeah. There seems to be no room for any kind of serendipity, inspiration. I mean, could very possibly be wrong. Yeah. I've been trying to log on to Marvel's website for three years now, so I can read this stuff online, and <laughs> I've been un- continuously unsuccessful. <laughs> Maybe a message in and of itself. <laughs> the thing that we had then that for me is immeasurable was this option for serendipity. You know, yeah. if, if I'd had, if the first issue had, hadn't been fully finished and the second issue weren't substantially in construction, maybe I would have found a way to save Thunderbird. Right. Mm-hmm. I would have wanted, I did want it. I didn't want him dead. Len decided for the death because he structured the stories on the basis of the X-Men were a, was a 32-page quarterly. If you waited to have the readers fall in love with Thunderbird, embrace him as a character, and then kill him off, that would have been two years down the line. Yeah. Yeah. And so for him, it was better to do it right off the bat, get everybody's attention, have them go, holy cow, we they just killed a hero. What's going to happen next? Mm-hmm. Right. Equally legitimate. I guess it, it's, it's always irked me because he's never been... Aside from the two-part story that Wheezy and I did, Adventures of Thunderbird in Hell, <laughs> yeah, he's never come back. Yeah, his brother so, came back, but yeah. not him. I remember some issue in the '80s with his brother. I think the opening splash page was so and so was walking along, as happy, not a care in the world. So of course he gets nailed, and then he gets like kicked in the back of the head by somebody. I think that's Thunderbird's brother. That's <laughs> you know, we're always to find melodramatic ways to open the story. I mean, that's the whole point of the splash page to get your attention. Your splash pages were great. If the splash page doesn't hook you, what's the point? Yeah. Well, that's the idea, but you guys did it. Well, now they do it with the recap page because sadly there's less, there seem to me to be less, I don't know, urgency to gather new readers than to, than to hold on to the ones we've already got. Yeah. Which I think is dumbass. (laughs) <laughs> but yeah i'm an older generation i like the idea of being the best-selling comic in the u.s i like yeah. the idea of frank miller and i duking it out him on a daredevil me on the x-men for the number one slot over a course of a year yeah it's yeah, what a time you know i like the idea that i could do a story with with barry windsor smith that sell that sold 500,000 copies. You know, I love the idea that X-Men 1 sold 7.8 million out of 8.4. I always go to that 8.4. I mean, that's that's unreal. My, my point at that back then was 
okay, we've sold just shy of 9 million copies with issue one. Any idiot can sell a billion copies with issue one. <laughs> well, it would be fun to sell a million copies of issue 12. Right. Not simply coast on the, the speculator sales, mm-hmm. but right. actually build a lasting audience yeah. in high six or seven figures. To me, that would be the game changer. To me, that, would, that was my back brain ambition for the first year of X-Men and of Uncanny uh, in 92. Of course, I got fired, which just goes to to teach you to rein in one's ambitions. No, no. That was a weird time. That was a weird time. Think for a moment, if we'd hit the crash in the early, middle 90s with a sustained high six, seven figure sales, with sustained sales in that level, would the fall off have been that critical? Yeah. Would we, would the industry have quote unquote collapsed or would right. it have just hit the speed bump and kept on going? Yeah. Where would we be today? I mean, that's, that's what I find infuriating. I mean, yeah. I could be totally wrong. Everything could have crashed. Yeah. But the what if is what always drives me nuts. Yeah. The industry is in such flux at that time. It feels like anything could have happened. Uh, changing course for a second. Thank you for writing such strong female characters between the X-Men and Miss Marvel or Carol Danvers and, and Spider-Woman. It's just like, it's so obvious now. Uh, and it was even obvious to Will and I, like in the eighties reading like old Marvel comics being like, Oh, what's going on here. But then, but now it's so in demand. Imagine if you hadn't done the great work you did, how far behind Marvel could be in those, those sort of things. It's, it's astounding. Yeah. Well, a quarter of our audience was, were women for most of my run. Now you had, you, you had two big female editors. You had uh, Louise, uh, Louise Simonson and Anna Senti. Yeah. And what I was so struck by when I watched this documentary, Close Kermit's X-Men, which again, I loved was how, how friendly you three were, how much you were all happy to talk together. The collaboration looked so strong. All three of you seemed extremely devoted to the X books. Like, is that, am I wrong? I mean, was this a great team? I mean, I'd like to hear about that. I like to think so. (laughs) And even in this interview, Chris, you've said such great things about your collaborators. You're like, I wanted to work with Dave Cockrum. I I admired the work Frank Miller was doing. I liked being in, you know, competition with him. Uh, I think that's such an important part of what made Marvel good was all these great collaborations. I don't know. Was it just good luck? Was it just, how did that happen? Serendipity. Yeah. I mean, the thing I've been, the, the intriguing fantasy that's been running through my head for the last couple of years is what if, I mean, what happened was that John went to, to shooter to Jim shooter and said, he goes or I go. Mm. I mean, he wanted the book and he, he felt he could make it. He made a decent case for it. Yeah. We were two alphas going in, at total loggerheads. Oh, yeah. wow. John wasn't comfortable with where I was going and I was too solipsistic to realize he was pissed off. Okay. Jim's decision was since I'd been with the book, since I, it started, I got the book and he gave John the FF. Right. But what's been intriguing me the last few years is that everything I created in the X-Men came after John left. The only 
real, I mean, in terms of characters, yeah. the only real character that we both created during the run was Kitty. Right. And he's been pissed off at me for the, what I've done with her ever since. <laughs> I, I think I, I didn't know that. It's again, we have, we have different visions yeah. of, of characters and where they go. But my thought is if I, if we'd gone the other way, if I'd gone to the FF and he'd stayed with the X-Men, what would have happened then? If, if yeah. imagine perhaps Logan and Sabretooth or Sabretooth at least as Marvel mainstream, not X-Men. Imagine mm-hmm. Mystique as Marvel mainstream. Imagine Rogue as Marvel mainstream. Imagine all the characters I created after that as Mar- Sinister as Marvel mainstream. Yeah. I think it is impossible to imagine you not having been on X-Men that long and Marvel being and resembling anything like it looks like now. It's just hard to, it's a a seismic, it's a seismic run and a seismic title that nothing other than the original books can even compare to. I just, Marvel might still be here. It would just be, even if you were doing another title, it's just hard. I can't, it's such a huge change. This is not stepping out a butterfly. (laughs) When I came back as a boss in 98 and I ended up on the FF with Salvador La Roca, which was so much fun. Yeah, fun See, time. right there, good good collaboration. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, wonderful. But I had no problem with that because there was no pressure. There was no way I was going to be Stan. Eight or nine other people have done had done the book over the last quarter century. All I, all I had to do was sit back and have fun. Yeah. But we did. That was a wonderful time because I could play with my own ideas. I could throw stuff out. You could create characters, Valeria. Yep. I mean, it was me having fun. Yeah. The interesting thing is the one stipulation I made when I came back was I wasn't going to go, I would not go anywhere near the Xbox. Been mm. there, done that. They've been taken in too many different directions since I yeah. left. I wasn't going to play with it. I gather now that there's been a creator change on the current X-Men. Yeah. Jonathan Hickman was Jonathan doing Hickman's it. Jonathan Hickman's left now. the company or yeah, gone to yeah. a I think he... I've heard he's going to come back and wrap it up. I don't know. Gary, but, Gary but Dugan see, that's is the point. doing it. You've, you've already moved all the characters to Mars. Yep. <laughs> but if they're on Mars, you know, Gene gives a big speech in the UN. Who cares? Yeah. They don't live on Earth anymore. Yeah. The they, book don't is... live, they don't live. They live on Krakoa anyway. It's, it's like, for me as a reader, the deciation of everything that got me hooked on Marvel in the first place. Nothing relates to anything else. What I loved about the X-Men was living in Salem Center, the New Mutants going to proms, Mm -hmm. the whole idea of the story that I did, We Were Only Fooling, where a kid comes in and makes every stupid mutant comment he can, Mm -hmm. puts his foot in his mouth more with every appearance, and it's only at the end do you discover that the reason he's so outrageous in his presentation is that he's a mutant and he's trying desperately to hide in plain sight because he's afraid that if he gets outed, he'll be killed. Yeah. And yeah. the other, so that it ends up the only thing he can do is kill himself mm. because he sees no way out. Mm. The amount of mail we got, I mean, getting a fan letter from Paul Levitz. That doesn't yeah. happen. 
you know, yeah. having your, the boss of your rival company saying how impressed he was and how important he felt that story was. But it's also reaching out to, we got more letters from, from gay readers, from people who identified with, with the character. It's, and with Kitty's eulogy at the end, the fact that we could, in those days, use words that are forbidden now in terms of describing cruel ways that you can casually diminish the person you're talking to. Yeah. For me, that was what was important. Finding a way to present the superheroes and the superhero reality in terms that are directly relevant to the reader's reality so that they can see these beings with all these powers and abilities struggling against the same forces that the readers can see in their lives and relate to in their lives. As I've said, that's what, that's what defined Marvel for me in the beginning. Yeah. That's, what, that's the direction I tried to hold tightly to throughout certainly that portion of my career and hope the, all the portions since, because otherwise, what's the point? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's an amazing story. Thank you. Um, I'm going to jump around to a couple of the random questions we have here on our list. Uh, but in the early run, there's a lot of characters from Iron Fist that show up. Mm-hmm. And I know that you had, you'd worked on Iron Fist. And I wondered what, uh, what that title meant to you. In the very beginning, when it was still part of Marvel Presents or Marvel... Premiere, maybe? Premiere, whatever. Marvel Preview. It was, a, it was a book. But then when it got its own title and John and I finally got together for the first yeah. time... It was the ridiculous delight of watching him get better and better with every issue. I mean, it wasn't even a bell curve. It was like watching, you know, a Saturn Saturn Uh V go for the moon. You're talking about John's art? Oh, yeah. It was just, it was, it was wonderful. Yeah. You know, it, because he is one of the seminal visual creators of, of that era. Oh, for sure. No question. You know, it's it was fun. Yeah, it was lots of fun. You, you you must have had a lot of affection for it because, like, Misty Knight shows up a lot in X Men, and um... the thing is, I have created somewhere north of a five hundred characters. The thing that always irks me is when I leave the book, they're forgotten. They're just, okay. you know, which I understand. I guess that's why I it drives me crazy not having somewhere I can use them in. It's more pronounced even now than it used to be. These characters, people, new creators come in and just sort of wipe the slate clean and you lose so many fun characters. Well, and and use the same characters. Case in point, the whole genesis of Gambit in the beginning was the first we have the Marauders who are totally evil. Then we introduce their boss, Mr. Sinister, Mm -hmm. who looks really, really self-indulgently villainous <laughs> and that's that except in his original conception what i had in mind is that sinister is a is a mutant but his lifespan is well over a millennium mm. but he ages proportionately mm. okay so yes he was born in the early 1800s which much to my surprise i see a story by another writer where it's set in the 1880s, and here you have Mr. Sinister as this 
bad scientist. Hmm. I'm going, huh, that's not my guy. Yeah. My guy is like four years old at this point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's a genius. He's a four-year-old. His, his intellect is extraordinary, but he's four years old. Mm -hmm. So what is sinister? Sinister is his false face, his simulacrum. So when you see that, when you, when you see that, it must be frustrating, right? You feel like, oh, my story is being ignored, sort of. No. It, well, my story was, is, was stillborn. I just, you know, it, that's, shit happens. Yeah. But the point was, the reason Sinister looks the way he does is that he's the creation of an eight-year-old. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, my bad, Sinister is a genius, but he's still emotionally a kid. So this okay. is a kid's vision of what a supervillain looks like. That's really oh, interesting. Right, right, right. Well, otherwise, why else create somebody so absolutely cliche? <laughs> <laughs> but the the initial the end point of this is Gambit is what Sinister will look like when he's twenty four. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. He he sent a clone of himself to infiltrate the X Men and destroy them from within, and that's why his initial target is the person who represents the heart and soul and future of the X-Men, which is Kitty. Yeah. The 50th and last president of the United States, as I'm fond of saying endlessly at conventions, <laughs> because she's overthrown by the Sentinels. Right, right. In days of future past. The point was that the longer he's with the X-Men, the longer he's with Kitty, the more Gambit's free will asserts itself and he breaks free of Sinister. He becomes what Sinister might have been if Sinister had a decent chance. If right. he and Kitty had grown up together or whatever. Which, of course, makes his creator even more pissed. So I was <laughs> figuring that's at least a decade's worth of punching and hitting right there. Yeah. <laughs> the quality of your work doesn't exist without you caring that much. And then the, the downside to that is once the editorial or management decisions shift, then well, you're just left uh, uh, hurt. And, and and your work wouldn't have been as good if you didn't care that much. So well, Also, the brutal reality is it's not Chris Claremont's X-Men. Yeah. It's Marvel's X-Men. But it also, but I don't know, to, to me uh, and to a lot of readers of our age, it, I look at X-Men, I still think, oh, this is this is built on Chris Claremont's X-Men. There, there is no, even if today's stories, which are, good but very almost feel like a uh, an elseworlds version of the x-men they don't ex they wouldn't work as well if they weren't built on the quality that you put in thank you I, I hope i hope readers if they don't know that learn that uh i hope most readers do know that i don't it's it's a i i just marvel uh, no pun intended at <laughs> the impact you had on that company and that industry i hope marvel appreciates it i don't know they probably don't enough well but uh, I mean, on one level, they appreciate it because I still have a job. On the other yeah. level, it drives me crazy when people speak in the past tense. Right. Because yeah. from my perspective, I'm not past tense. I guess the, the constant discussion between me and Marvel is me trying to get a shot at another series, not even yeah. part of the X, the direct X canon, but just give me a a year's worth of material to play with. Yeah. And let's see what happens. It goes back to what Stan said. Do good work. Don't be a pain in the ass. Get your books in on time. I have a, one last question. 
And that is, uh, I don't know if you want to talk about this, but I want to know what you're working on now. Is there anything you can say or can you tease us or give us any kind of hints of things that might be coming? Actually, no. There's nothing you can say. No, I mean, it's, I'm under a gag order. Sure, sure. I am working on stuff. You are working on stuff. Oh, yeah. No, no. It's um, the series I'm working on has an artist that I wasn't sure of when I saw the samples. And it's literally, as with John in the beginning, with every scene, every issue, it's just getting better and better. And exciting. I oh, I think it's it's absolutely spectacular. Fingers crossed it will come out sooner rather than later. Yep. Once the gag order comes off, I'll be screaming up, down, right, left, <laughs> and I just love to know that 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 it sounds like stuff's coming. That's all I wanted to hear. We want to thank you for taking this time. It's been a thrill. We've been so excited to do it, Chris. And I love seeing the the interviews you do. You were on X Men Explained, and I love that episode. And I love this documentary and it really means a lot to me and the other fans when people who've done a lot of stuff have these conversations that kind of let us know some of the thoughts and feelings that go into it. It really, it really amplifies the connection to the work. And I really appreciate that you make time for it. Yeah. Thank you for talking to us. Thank you for being someone who is willing to talk to people. And also thank you for just, I mean, creating all this stuff again, like it's just the sheer volume of stuff you've created and are continuing to create is and caring so much is so important. Well, the pleasure is mine. Thank you. All right. And that's our interview. Kevin, what'd you think? Uh, it was fun. I just a few things that really surprised me. And I, I think I even say this during the interview, but um, when he mentions that he introduced Phoenix early, just because like they had issue 100 coming up. Yes. It feels like, there's still even though we talk about it all the time sort of the fly-by nature of comics there's just something so funny about like what has become like one of the most important things to ever happen in x-men history just sort of being like you need something for issue 100 yes okay i'll just do the most important thing ever that's right and and as you say in the interview and her death came about just because john Byrne threw in a panel to heighten a certain montage yeah this entire arc this entire narrative of gene gray the most important storyline of gene gray's fictional life became because of like just two random edicts well yes and 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 that's related to i think one of claremont's things he's very passionate about and his strengths is kind of like solving puzzles like that Mm -hmm. like when he was talking about his memories of early days in the x-men and figuring out how to defeat krakoa in the initial giant size when he's just an associate editor like he first of all he's got a crazy memory for like particular plot points and story points. It's like when you hear like a, an athlete who's played baseball for 20 years and they can still remember what pitch was thrown to them in a certain all-star game or something. He's like, Oh, you know, this, the challenge of this story and how he figured it out. And he still seems very excited by trying to like solve challenges like that. Like, what do we do for issue 100? How do we reconcile this particular plot hole? Right? Like he, he got very excited about that stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, being told you figure it out seemed to be the favorite thing he was told to do. <laughs> that's yeah, that's something that really excites him. Um, and so I, I was, I mean, I, I say this in a positive way like, he's a real nerd about it, like, he's a real comic yeah. nerd for like plot and story and and how to be loyal to the characters and stuff like that. That was exciting to hear. Yeah, I also think it's always interesting to hear creators like talk about what they would have done if they stayed on a book or stayed with characters. Um, uh, because there's always that 
like when Peter David left the Hulk, his last issue sort of was uh, sort of the fictional future of what the Hulk could have could have happened if Peter David stayed on the book. Yeah. Um, and like some writers like Kurt Busiek will sometimes be like, oh, if I kept doing this book, I would have done some other stuff. But he never says what it is. He's like, I might use it someday. But I'm always tantalized and interested. In like, oh, what, what would you have done if you stayed on Thunderbolts or Avengers longer? Um, and so him talking about Mr. Sinister, a character I have, no real knowledge of right. a, a surface level knowledge of Mr. Sinister and Gambit, but his description of Mr. Sinister and Gambit sounded really interesting to me. I don't yeah, really yeah. know what those storylines ended up being, but the idea that Mr. Sinister is a creation is an eighth, an eight year old's idea of what a villain should be. And Gambit is like the, what an eight year old thinks a cool person should be is very fun to me. It's a really fun idea, and it's just interesting that he had that planned out already. Uh, yeah, so it was really fun to hear that. Um, it's also, uh, you can't miss this. Like, he's, um, he misses it. You know, you can tell that he, that yeah. he's, he's been, he was in the big chair for so long, and he still wants it. It's, um, I could hear his frustration. I think you can't miss that. And I, I wrestled with how to react to that. I was like, I sort of like felt bad for him, but then yeah. I was also like, I get it. You know, like, again, you can't overstate how important and big his run was and to have been the guy for so long, the same thing that made him good and passionate at that role makes it hard for him to let go of that. Yeah. It's no writer lasts forever. No creative person stays like uh, is the is a fan's favorite forever, right? You know, yeah. a musician, if they live, so yeah, that's my John Lennon exception. At some point, <laughs> thank like, you for ah. that. As a Beatles fan, I appreciate that. You know, their music isn't as good, or like, ah, I wish they were doing more stuff like this, or like this other band is more popular now. Like, if the Beatles had stayed together, all lived forever. There's hits a point where it's like they're oh, not yeah. the number one band in the world, and Absolutely. it's like, why not? But why aren't they? Uh, I mean, um, I, I think Paul McCartney is a great metaphor for this because I'm a, a huge Beatles fan. I'm a huge Paul McCartney fan. I listen to all of his albums. And of course, 78-year-old Paul McCartney is not going to dominate the market the way 24-year-old Paul McCartney yeah. did. I mean, nobody dominates the market the way 24-year-old Paul McCartney and the Beatles did, including him, right? And so I, I'm fascinated with a lot of creative people who live to the winter of their years and they're still making stuff and you see how they react to it. Like Paul Simon will release an album and I'll get that stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and it, it is, it, and it's really interesting to see how these people handle that role. It's, it's tough. Yeah. And those might be bad exceptions in the, in the sense that like, they're still able to do whatever they want. Yeah. Yeah. Claremont uh, like, needs a company to sort of like give him, yeah, the roles and stuff. Like if a record company was like, we don't want to sell your records anymore, uh, Paul uh, yeah. McCartney or Simon, it'd be like that'd be sort of strange and surprising. Um, but you know, like Marvel does not employ Chris Claremont like they used to, and if anyone it has an understandable reason to be like, well, why don't I get more work? And it, it's Chris. Uh, yeah, um, it, it, I I both get why he doesn't get a ton more work and get why he would be bad about it. Uh, and also yeah. would want to see more of it. Um, yeah. Um, and you know, it's, it's, I do this, I do the same thing with uh, McCartney and the other artists that I've loved a long time. You imagine a world where they're, they're able to somehow incorporate all the new stuff and all the old stuff and yeah. like solve this problem. But man, that's a big ask. Uh, 
Yeah. So, but, but I guess I'm, I always find it interesting, like, and I'm sure this is something he wrestles with, like, um, he still wants to create. So what, what does that look like? Uh, you know, but I, I'm, he talked, he talked a little bit of that. He's working on something until it comes out. You don't know if it's going to come out, but if it does, I'm going to get it. Like I'm, I'm curious to see yeah. what this passionate brain who has been on the front lines of the modern Marvel Renaissance. I'm, I'm curious what rattles around in it for sure. Yeah. And there definitely is a market for that sort of stuff. Uh, he meant, uh, he mentioned, uh, uh, a lot about like being asked to write, like still like, and that's like X-Men forever. Do we do, is that still in there? I don't remember actually. Okay. Uh, well, at some point he mentioned, and we may have cut it that he mentions like, Oh, writing for X-Men forever, which is like continuing his X-Men book as if he did not leave the book. So it's sort of like this weird nostalgic thing. And like, I know they, they've, did a new mutants forever book uh, that he and Bill Sienkiewicz did. And like Peter David did an X factor one and Peter David is doing like a symbiotic Spider-Man series. That's sort of in that same realm, like Spider-Man when he had the alien costume. Yeah. And those are all like fun books. Like there's a limited market for them and they're sort of really fun and they're sort of steeped in yesterday. Yeah. Uh, And it's both great to see those books and sort of a shame that like Marvel won't find another use for Peter David and Chris Claremont and these guys. And maybe they will, maybe they are working on it. I guess it. we should also say, and of course we are not in the shoes of the Marvel executives. Yeah. I, I think it is also clear that Claremont is valued and respected. They wouldn't um, give him that work. Yeah. It's like, he even says it like he still has a job at Marvel, which he absolutely deserves. Yeah. Um, And I think they are doing that out of respect for what he's done, which mm-hmm. so, I, I I do appreciate that. I think Marvel is try trying to do right by these guys. Yeah, uh, and they're a little writer. bit limited. They're limited by the market and a lot of other pressures. And so uh, I see that they're in a tough spot too. Yeah, it's not every writer or artist that can go to Marvel and just be like, "I want a book. Find a book for me," and that they'll be like, "Well, we'll do it." Right. Uh, and I think they would do it for Chris. And, and like, maybe if John Romita Jr. showed up and said, "I want to draw something. Find something for me," they're going to do it. Uh, there's only a handful of creatives. I think some people they're like, if we can find a good fit, we'll do it. And there's other people they're like, we will do the work to find that good fit. I mean, it's really, I'm really getting at a segue here, but I think it's interesting when you read about like Steve Ditko's life, our, our, one of our favorite creators, mm-hmm. Kevin in the eighties in the late seventies and eighties, he did go back to Marvel and got some work. And he was like, I won't do Spider-Man, but what do you got for me? And the people running, this is according to the, um, uh, strange life of Steve Ditko collection that you got me for Christmas, Kevin. Mm-hmm. And like, and he, but he wanted work. He was like low on money. He didn't own a piece of the character. So he wasn't, and who knows, Ditko might've, who knows what, I don't, can't speak to his financial situation. Anyway, in the eighties, he walked up to editors who had grown up loving him. Yeah. And he was like, give me work. And they did give him work, but it wasn't like glamorous work. It was like, you know, draw Rom draw the mm-hmm. transformers coloring book uh yeah. do the squirrel girl story when you know she's appearing in the back of whatever it was captain america or something yeah he did a, he, uh, iron man um all right thank you oh uh, also yeah. i want to say kevin thank god you were on this interview with claremont because he would mention stories and titles and i'd be like what is that and you always knew exactly what he was mentioning thank god you were there um but like welcome. you know uh, you're welcome there's a, you can vent you can Venmo me your thanks. <laughs> okay, you know, I will. Four or five figure sum. Wow, I wish I wish I'd done that before. <laughs> um, 
But like, this is an ongoing thing is like, what do you do with these luminaries that you love and respect, yeah. but the market has different <laughs> ideas in mind? Well, I mean, it's things like Speedball. When I think of Steve Ditko, I think about Speedball, which is like, is that 90s? But not late eight, I feel like late it's 80s, 80s, early 90s. Anyway, it's late. It's it's way deep into Steve Ditko's uh, career and existence. Yeah. And the book is not great. Yeah. But it's interesting and fun. And I own every issue and I read it. Yes. Um, and I've and read you- it multiple times and I appreciate it. It is it weirdly feels like a book that has, that was like lost in the archives. Yeah. And then they dug out and it's like, Oh, this should have come out in 73. Uh, blow off the dust. Here it is. This is what Dicko would have done in 1973. If he had come back to Marvel then, and yeah. it could have been a decent hit. And here it's sort of like, Oh, this is a weird thing that shouldn't exist now. And I love it for that, yes. but it's certainly not going to blow up. It's not going to be Todd McFarlane's spawn. It just um, can't be. It's funny. But you never know. You never know if somebody, you know, these 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 people are we're talking about great creators and like yeah. really interesting people. Uh, but uh, I, but I, I guess I should say I, let, I love that Marvel is like, yeah, let's make a book with Steve Dicko. What's the worst that can happen? We lose a few bucks. Yeah. And we're going to so, lose a few bucks. That's the guy to lose them on. Exactly. And I and I do think that, you know, it's very you can oversimplify it and say, boy, this guy's not getting the work he deserves. But I do think on the other side, there is a company that's like, hey, we know this guy deserves it. We're trying to. We're trying to make this work. So I appreciate that too. Man, what what a thrill to talk to him. I feel so lucky that it happened. Yeah, it's it's crazy to be like reading the Hellfire saga and then talking to Chris Claremont. It, um, some black magic was involved in this happening for us. <laughs> Phoenix got involved and made it possible for us. Uh, and I feel like uh, in a few months, I'll want to talk to him again as I read deeper and deeper into this. I'm going to have questions about specific storylines, even as it is like since we've talked to him. Well, uh, I was like, oh, I wish I could talk to him more about why Mastermind is the entryway into the Hellfire Club. That's so interesting to me. Well, I, I think do, he would know. Well, maybe we'll do it because I actually do think the questions that he is most excited to answer are, why did you make this decision in this story? Like he's ready. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe, maybe we will try to make that happen. I don't, if he remembers who we are anyway. So yeah. thanks. Thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah. Thank you, Chris, for talking to us. I don't, you're not going to listen to this podcast. You're, you're but, not uh, hearing this, but thank you. To, thank you for doing it. So cool. Thank you, Patrick, for hooking it up. And, um, our email address is screwitcomics at Gmail. If you want to tell us what question we should have asked, if you want to criticize yeah. us for how we handle certain things, we're ready for it, baby. Um, and we're on Twitter at Screw It Comics and Instagram at Screw It Comics. We're going to do more Mutants and Mailbag. We are still reading the original Uncanny Claremont run, and it is... We haven't even gotten to Days of Future of Past. Or Days of Future Past. Or Death of Future Such yeah. good stuff coming up, man. Yeah. We can't wait. So Then it's um, all garbage. <laughs> <laughs> so we're really excited to, to push on with it. And uh, thanks for listening. Yeah. Thank you, everyone. Bye. Bye. Screw it. Screw it. Screw it. Comics. Hello, listeners of Screw It. We're just going to talk about comics. Are you ready for a promo? My name is Muriel, and I love true crime. I'm Nick, and I am not a fan of true crime. Every week on our new podcast, Muriel's Murders, I handpick a real-life crime story that I think will blow Nick's mind. Muriel is really enthusiastic about researching and telling me these stories, and boy, they are a lot. Some of them are famous. Some of them are weirdly under the radar, but all of them contain crime, violence, and murder from across history and around the globe. How does that make you 
feel, Nikki? Nervous. Are you ready to hear a story? No. Too bad. Here comes Muriel's Murders. So join us every Wednesday wherever you get your podcasts. And check out the original Muriel's Murders animations on Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and TikTok at Muriel's Murders. Campfire. <laughs>